0: Hi, this is Lex, and welcome to the Fintech Blueprint. It's your podcast about fintech, decentralized finance, digital banking, investing, robo-advice, artificial intelligence, and all the other frontier technology that is transforming financial services. To get more content, like an illustrated transcript of this conversation, in your inbox, subscribe at fintechblueprint.com. So without further delay, let's jump into today's
1: episode. Lex Socolin is the head economist at Consensus a blockchain software company. And Lex, Zuckerberg is positioning Facebook from a social networking company to a metaverse company. Is this merely branding or an attempt to use gimmicky slogans to drum up attention? Or like Zuckerberg says, is this the future in your mind of how many of us will be interacting online?
0: It's already in large part how many of us are interacting online. I think there are a couple of different trends that have come together to define what this concept of the metaverse is. But we, we already touch it and live it in many ways today. You know, And so there are themes from artificial intelligence and machine vision and kind of the digitization of the physical space. To themes around augmented reality and virtual reality, and more broadly, virtual worlds that that people inhabit in which they interact. So, if you look at things like Fortnite, uh, Roblox, Minecraft, and of, then of course there there are themes around uh, digital objects, uh, non fungible tokens, uh, the the transformation that's going on in media to to create economic activity around all these things. And so, I think Zuckerberg is just putting a name on what we're all already feeling and really kind of giving a path to lots of other companies to coalesce into these ideas.
1: Now, it sounds like from Zuckerberg's point of view, and obviously, if you look at what Facebook has done in recent years, plowing billions of dollars into uh, VR headsets with the Oculus, that these devices are a key component of the metaverse. And a lot of people point to Ready Player One as a visual illustration of this But um, it sounds like VR, AR is a, a very key component.
0: Yeah, I think you can say all this stuff more simply and also, you know, with less jargon, which is we're all living in a video game world run by robots, the end. And that's already happening today. So when you're on Twitter, what you see on Twitter is determined by a machine a thousand times, a million times, 10 million times more powerful than what you can compute. And when you're posting a video to TikTok, the destination of that video is going to be determined by a giant cluster of super software trained on the biology of billions of teenagers everywhere. And when people join digital games today and run economies or do different transactions in those games, those economies look very much the same, very similar to the ones that exist in the physical world. And so, you know, in addition to just these sort of echoing pieces of human nature and human organization, and in, in addition to the fact that we have these, these billion person scale machines that intermediate how we make choices and what we consume, we now also have a digital infrastructure for um, economies in the digital world. And I think this is the combination of blockchain-based themes with the extended reality themes that that you describe, but it's not it's not necessary for us to be wearing the headset to be in the digital world. We can spend some time looking at a screen and similarly, you know, pay thousands or millions of dollars for a digital plot of land and decorated with extremely valuable avatars and various tokens and NFTs. You know, from from artists like Damien Hirst, and so the metaverse—it's just—it's um, more of like a broad brush label for a number of themes that are getting us all to essentially live in a giant rendered video game, intermediated by tech companies and decentralized projects.
1: Now, I want to say, personally speaking, um, I just recently got an Oculus this year and i finally decided i needed to bite the bullet and buy one it's not too expensive it was you know basically 300 bucks which for a gaming system if you look at it that way is is reasonable but it's much more than that it's entertainment there's uh, youtube vr there's plenty of videos movies that you can watch in vr 360 degrees all all the way around you everywhere you look you know you're watching the movie or the video there's even business applications there's all sorts of different things and the thing that really struck me is that Facebook has basically created an ecosystem similar to what Apple has done, you know, on mobile phones. You know, you look, you have a whole app ecosystem. You can pay for these apps. You can use them for a variety of different things. That's what Facebook has done with VR now. And I mean, if you were to compare the two, looking at a two-dimensional, small little physical screen or even a computer monitor, comparing that to an immersive experience like you get in VR, there's no comparison. So from a person who's just now experiencing it, to me, it's clearly the future. And it kind of feels like, and I want to get your thoughts on this, kind of feels like we're in the early days of the internet, you know, like you're just now starting to explore something, you can see the potential, and it's very exciting but we're still somewhat in the beginning stages of it. You
0: do see the the early ingredients that are going to be the building blocks or that are the building blocks of an internet or a digital world which is not discrete in the way that VR apps are today, but that is continuous and the size of the internet and, you know, as profound. Like even going to the app store example, you could have a you could have uh, Angry Birds the game, right? <clears throat> and Angry Birds the game is not the internet. Angry Birds the Game is a fun distraction that is well designed and kind of people fiddle with and it got some media attention, turned into a media brand and kind of dissipated. The difference between Facebook has some cool apps in VR, including the hardware that they sell, you know, and there's lots of approaches to the hardware, whether it's Rendering uh, a, a full virtual world in a headset or whether it's rendering some overlay on the physical world with glasses, you know, and therefore augmented reality, um, which requires a lot of machine learning and machine vision to in real time kind of map the, the thing that the computer sees onto a digital twin of what the computer uh, models. Anyway, so the, these are ways in which to inject the, either your physical presence or, or digital objects on physical terrain. Um, but again, these are sort of, they're the equivalent of Angry Birds, right? They're a toy that you put on top of some sort of infrastructure. And the, the real trick to the Ready Player One world isn't who can build the best maze uh, through which to put a viewer the, the trick is how do you connect all of these computers and all of these people and all of these market venues um, in such a way that it starts to eat meaningful portions of GDP in the way that the internet has replaced meaningful portions of traditional terrestrial physical commerce and you know media and all, all sorts of other components of um, what an economy is, you know, and, and you have to really think big in the sense that 30% of human time in the future may be spent entirely in the metaverse. And that's not unusual today. People spend eight to 10 hours a day staring at a computer screen. And so how can we interconnect the things that are on the frontier, meaning, what, what is the, the financial, the computational, the economic infrastructure that is necessary for people to inhabit a shared virtual world, for that virtual world to be persistent and have meaning, and then for that virtual world to very likely be mapped onto the physical world such that there's not really a distinct, a strong distinction between things and their digital twins, right? Like locations and their digital twins, people and their digital avatars, um, a self-driving car and the model of the self-driving car and so on. Um, and then how do you weave into that meaningful ownership, uh, and economic exchange and markets and, and currencies you know, and I, th- I think this is this is the key. And when Zuckerberg talks about building out the metaverse, he's not talking about um, Facebook owning a particular ecosystem because it's beyond the ownership of any particular company. And for you know, for any shared public good to become a global infrastructure, you need millions of participants some of whom are very large and some of whom are people and you need capitalist incentives to, to drive native economic activity. Um, And you need competitors to cooperate and, you know, make public, make mutualized and free uh, through standards and open source software and other things, this, this new place to be explored. And so I, I think it's not just Facebook, but it's Google and Microsoft and Every other tech company that's, that's able to work on these types of initiatives will need to figure out a way to, to cross-pollinate and share resources and plug into each other.
1: Right. And you actually write in one of your recent notes, talking about the metaverse and how this is beginning to unfold with a, an actual emerging economy. You talked about, I thought this was really interesting, is how we're starting to see, quote, the alternative to work beginning to form. And that's via the creator economy. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. So every five years, there's a new venture capital bingo uh, word for you know how, how people are organizing their time. And before it was the gig economy and Uber and everybody was going to be a freelancer and so on. You know, and these these things find an equilibrium. So they incrementally chip away at the structure, the social structure, and then create some path that's novel and different. And so the current positioning or the current um, idea of a creator economy comes out, of course, out of Silicon Valley, and overlaps with some of the trends that are starting to emerge uh, from from how uh, Generation Z, right, the the generation younger than millennials, behaves on the internet and what the sort of actual fault lines or behavioral psychographic differences are between millennials and Gen Z. And so, whereas millennials, certainly grew up with a lot of technology and are native to social media and so on, you know, to, to completely generalize what they do is they, uh, they live in the real world and then they go to the digital world to have an experience or to post something or to share something, to create some sort of image, right? That avatar. And then they leave the social, the digital social environment. And then they live their sort of like real lives back in the real world. And with Gen Z, it's it's quite flipped where the online world is never separate from the day-to-day. Like you you never leave the online world because that's where you hang out and that's where everybody is all the time. Like there's nowhere else to go. And so this comes out in social media engagement. This comes out in mode of interaction. And this also comes out around these ideas of authenticity. So whereas millennials go online and put up some idealized version of themselves to tell essentially a theatrical story. Gen Z is much more about just being. And, the, you know, if you never leave, then you can't pretend to, it's almost impossible to carry this pretense. And so um, the creator economy is kind of this amalgamation of largely young people, but anybody who's using um, social networks to tell a story, whether that story is um, with video content or with visual content or with written content. And, um, you know, increasingly more and more people are starting to make a living generating narratives and stories and building micro fan bases and and finding ways to, uh, you know, to monetize that. And I'd say the, the core things that have flipped on over the last several years around the creator economy, you know, whether it's the newsletter of platforms like Substack or, or web three platforms like mirror um, it's, there's just been a lot more tooling to help creators get revenues and a living out of their fan bases and following. Um, and with the advent of nfts and the ability of people to to actually pay for music or pay for visual art and own something in return rather than just live sort of in this advertising based model um, that has led us to to a dystopian outcome. Creators are able to kind of fund uh, what they do in in pretty novel ways, and so I think we're gonna we're gonna see more and more people kind of build these digital lives and narrate them and build uh, meta narratives, meaning uh, like participatory narratives where their fans can be part of some activity, or they can buy some some uh, you know marker of uh, belonging both in the physical world or in the digital world, you know, and I, th- I think we're, we're just going to see more and more people just get used to the behavior that you can have uh, fully digital in- interactions and that they are worth something and that, and that people can make a living doing this.
1: Tying this back to the metaverse, you know, the, the creator economy, like you said, it's an amalgamation of people using YouTube, Instagram, and other outlets to earn revenues via the content they post. You know, crafting narratives or getting people engaged, right, in in the content. Mr. Beast is a, a really good example, right? I think he's uh, probably the largest earner of revenues uh, online through YouTube, at, at least, especially. My son watches them almost every day. And I mean, one of his big shticks is he gives away money. It just. Copious amounts of money. I mean, right, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. Sometimes I think he's giving away millions of dollars just to random people, and obviously millions of people will watch those YouTube videos. So it's this kind of you know self feeding cycle where he gets money from all the people to watch it, and then he gives it away. So you know, and then he gives more away, and he he finds really creative ways to give this money away through uh, a lot of you know a lot of times it's a sort of gamified experience. But as you said, the metaverse or the world we live in, we're increasingly living in a video game world and it's run or intermediated by robots. And here we have this situation where there's lots of people that are out of a job uh, post-COVID. A number of people believe that we might remain at a permanently high plateau of unemployment. Um, Increasingly, those people, especially on the younger side, like you said, Gen Zs, are going to be probably not opting back in for a physical job, going somewhere, but their job is going to be in the metaverse. It's going to be either playing a game for money. And you talk about how, I mean, we're now seeing places where you can get paid playing a game more than what you would get if, you know, you're get paid at a low wage job, right? So it sounds like this is, this is kind of a direction that we're headed. I don't know. It just, this this is this is a sort of glimpse of the future it sounds like yeah i think
0: you you have a bunch of evidence and a bunch of symptoms for for things that they're they're likely to be more of not less of and it's it's tough to land the shape of what's to come you know anybody who says they know it specifically will be a hundred percent wrong, but we're seeing more and more odd things and the odd things tend to repeat and they, they're congealing into, uh, into something that feels like a whole. you know? So the, I think the example you're referring to is, um, it's a crypto game called Axie Infinity and Axie Infinity is like Pokemon Go. Uh, not that I have, Played Pokemon Go, but uh, it's 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 a Pokemon game, uh, It's just off brand. And in in playing it, it has you know, like the points are real. So the points are uh, crypto assets, they're tokens, as are the actual characters. The characters are NFTs, and in playing the game, you can earn rewards. And the rewards uh, in the last couple of months have become relatively so valuable that. It's something like 10 or 20 times the uh, minimum wage in the Philippines, uh, you know, and so there are teams of people uh, organized in the Philippines who are professionally playing this game in order to generate rewards. And so this theme is called uh, uh, pay to earn. And it's strange. It, it is legitimately strange and it has kind of weird global overtones, too, because you know, one question is, where, where is this money coming from? Like, what are you earning, right? Somebody is generating assets and kind of printing money and cashing it out and so on. And the answer becomes pretty long and convoluted, which is the reason Axie Infinity uh, assets and tokens and NFTs are valuable is because the overall Ethereum ecosystem is doing very well and other NFTs and currencies are valuable. And so people who have capital gains in those assets are putting them into this game. And why is Ethereum valuable and that, you know, you can start telling the story about Bitcoin and blockchain infrastructure and fintech investment, and then you can start telling the story about the whatever the number is, six trillion, seven trillion of USD that has been printed in order to rescue the United States economy. Uh, from from the the COVID depression, therefore resulting in absolutely insane uh, asset inflation across the board, and in particular in commodities and crypto assets, right? And that's spilling out into the lives of you know thousands or hundreds of thousands of people in the Philippines who are playing a video game um, as their daily work. You know, and that's weird. That is strange. Something like twenty five percent of of the Philippines owns crypto assets, in part as a result and like this is not an exception this is not this is not a a one time thing this is how life will be from now on and i think the closer people the faster people realize that outcomes like this are a natural consequence of how the economy is run where tech is going you know the the sort of the end point of an advertising based tech economy with mega trillion amazons and alibabas these are the outcomes and so the question is what's going to be built next how will the beniver- how will the metaverse be built will it continue to be built in a way that is attention eating and advertising based and kind of this like dystopian trap that we're in or is it going to be built bottoms up on open source projects with with decentralized infrastructure and i think that's the that's the key
1: Yeah, as you said, there's all these people in the Philippines, and this is not just true for the Philippines, but in other parts of the world, of course, but, you know, they're playing this game online and they're earning more than they would from minimum wage there. So uh, obviously, I mean, gosh, if you have a choice to earn a minimum wage at a fast food restaurant or somewhere else that may not be good working conditions or play a video game that you actually enjoy and you're getting some fun out of, uh, then clearly you're going to be playing the video game. I think that's pretty obvious and multiply this now, not just Philippines, but uh, across increasingly thousands, tens of thousands, eventually millions. You said, you know, 30% of global population may be eventually interacting through the metaverse. People spend eight to 10 hours sometimes staring at a computer screen. So why not? Would they be interacting through the metaverse through augmented reality or virtual reality, you know, for that same amount of time? I think that's obvious. But when you have you know, this large collection of people all playing a video game online. Would that be an example of a decentralized, autonomous organization? Or how would you frame what that is for our listeners?
0: There are different ways to do computation, you can do it on a giant supercomputer in the 60s or 70s. Um, and then you can do it on a personal computer on, uh, on your desktop in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. You can do it on a laptop or you can do computation on your phone. And the computation on your phone in large part pulls from the cloud, right, where you have large server farms run by the tech firms. Um, and increasingly, you can do also computation on blockchain networks, which are decentralized groups of, of nodes that are all executing software code. And then through sophisticated mathematics, agreeing on whether the outcome is, is correct or not and generating sort of a state of history for that computation over time that everybody agrees on. So all of a sudden there's a there's a truth, a single thread of truth, uh, a timeline that you all live on. And so that's called a blockchain and computational blockchains like Ethereum are often called um, the base layer because they're they're the fundamental computational infrastructure. Um, Sometimes they're called a protocol as well. And you can think of other protocols like HTTP and various Internet standards. Right. So protocols are things that are standards that are public goods that are shared among industries and populations on which something runs. And so on top of this protocol um, are decentralized applications. And those are like apps, but they they run in the computing environment of this computational blockchain or smart contract platform. And so these applications are decentralized because they're running on all the different nodes at the same time and then coming to a shared state of, of history. Um, but they're applications in that they they do something. You know, it can be a calculator, it can be a trading tool, or it can be some version of a Video game, and so for Axie, I think it's the assets themselves that are anchored to blockchain. I'm not sure if the if the actual game is computed and rendered. Uh, I I just I don't know for a fact. Um, today's blockchains are pretty computationally limited. So if you think about you know Nintendo in the 80s with everything being pixelated and in, in 16 colors versus what cgi inside of a star wars movie looks like today that's kind of where we are right we're the in the in the 16 pixel world in terms of the technology and so um you know axes underlying mechanics are are running on this decentralized uh chain um it, it itself is uh an application. And then you know, the word DAO, Decentralized Autonomous Organization, it tends to refer to, in the cases of some protocols and some applications, there'll be a community um, that is using the product, but is also governing the product, making decisions about what to develop, how to invest uh, a treasury, uh, what does the roadmap look like, who to partner with, and so on. And so um, this is different in different cases, but generally speaking, DAOs are sort of like a um, 21st century version of um, a partnership or a corporation, but is internet native and is, is a lot more fluid. And uh, DAOs tend to be governed on chain as part of um, kind of these computational networks. And so y- you can attach a DAO sort of governance mechanism to uh, an application or a protocol um, and, and use that in order to to make progress in building more
1: software, adding more art, whatever you like to do. So as we started off, you know, you had said that we're increasingly living in a video game world that is run or intermediated by robots. In the case of a decentralized autonomous organization or DAO, it sounds like, you know, in this video game world, um, it's really software that's implementing or doing a lot of the functions that would normally be done by people. And then instead of If you were to think of a normal company where everyone's meeting in one central location or in a building, perhaps in multiple places around the world, depending on how large that company is, of course, now they're interacting online, or we could say through the metaverse, and uh, a lot of the functions of the, the plumbing of how they interact and of how certain things are conducted... That, that that is handled by software and it sounds like a key part of that is decentralized software which is blockchain based.
0: Yeah I, I think that's right. I mean DAOs are not they're not AGI. They're not they're not some general artificial intelligence. It's not Skynet deciding uh what to do uh through machine learning or anything like that. DAOs are just a fairly straight They're a well-defined rule-based governance system with inputs being people and and the governance tools being tokens and outputs being decisions about how to spend the resources of the overall community. And so these things have emerged because in the decentralized approach to making a business, you start with the premise that the customer owns their, their value you know this. This is in sharp contrast to the design of Facebook and other advertising-based companies, where uh, the the customers' data and their attention is the product, which is packaged and resold at scale to um, advertisers that want to influence population at scale in into different opinions or or commercial actions. And so if you're starting from a point of everybody's self-sovereign, meaning they own their data, they control access to their data, to their money, and so on, then you have to figure out ways for people to to come together and come to decisions uh, and collaborate. And so we, we're, we're starting to see these structures kind of get designed essentially from scratch in order to to create coordination and solve various economic and game theoretic problems, um, solve problems around getting people to cooperate or h- how to cooperate when you're in completely different parts of the world and you have very different incentives and you might be living in, in under different regulatory jurisdictions and so on. And I think you know, over, over time, this stuff will congeal. It'll it'll normalize. You know, it's it probably won't lose the sci-fi language, but what probably will happen is that the sci-fi language will become normal and just written into law and part of our everyday environment.
1: So, where does consensus, your company, a blockchain software company, fit into, as we discussed today, the emerging economics of the metaverse? decentralized autonomous organizations, a lot of these emerging things that I think we all need to be aware of and to have on our radar, because this is the future that's being created right before our very eyes. Where does consensus fit into this growing economy? We do
0: a lot of things, but I'll point to the the core, I think, for Uh, For the listeners here, the first is that we provide uh, the largest crypto wallet that connects to Web3. Web3 is kind of the economic part of the metaverse. And so MetaMask has today, I think, something like 8.5 million uh, monthly average users. And that's what people use to engage with uh, decentralized um, economies. You know and, and hold their assets and participate in in various uh, crypto games and collect nfts and so on and so forth um, so if you haven't yet check out metamask it's it's a pretty easy wallet to use just part of your browser um, and then we have we we have a number of tools that help developers build applications so it, it's complicated to stand up um, to stand up applications that work on this infrastructure because it's still foreign to to many builders and developers, and so we provide uh, APIs and you know the the equivalent of cloud hosting for for folks that want help on getting started with building decentralized
1: applications. So Consensus is the developer of Metamask, and that's a software cryptocurrency wallet. We've spoken in the past with uh, various crypto experts, and one of the ideas that I've tried to get across is that you can't look at the price of either Ethereum or Bitcoin or the crypto space at large and conflate that with the progress of the technology. Would you mind just touching upon that briefly? I think it's a, it's a really thorny issue because when you go
0: to macro, you can, it's, it's almost, you're not really saying anything, right? Crypto is so far into its growth that you have things that look like a small business, like a laundromat. And then you have things that look like the IMF, the International Monetary Fund with no profit motive. And then you have things that look like Goldman Sachs. And then you have things that look like individual traders running around doing stuff on their own. Um, and then you've got artists spray painting the walls here and there, and and then you've got public actors and governments and so on, and and so it's it's really hard to paint with a broad brush, and I think it's it's a good thing we've left the, this phase of talking about blockchain as just cryptocurrencies replacing the Fed, you know, uh, inflation hedge. And while that's that's a large portion of the popular discourse, personally, for me, I just I don't find that really interesting or compelling um, because. There's nowhere to go if the only thing that you're investing in is a reaction to to something else because you're you're just in opposition to things that happen in the outside world and you, you know you're you're mad at the federal Reserve or you're mad at the issuance of relief for small businesses during covid or you know and you're just stuck reacting to that and um, waving the flag around for for your favorite name, hoping the price goes up. And it's just not a very interesting or productive or promising place to be. And I think when you look instead at blockchain based computation and the platform shift that creates, what you instead get is agency and you get power over the things you care about and the things you build and the things you watch because you no longer have to rely on the outside world to, you know, dictate to you what you're investment is worth. You can instead start to tell stories as well as build things and actualize things that are productive and interesting and new types of economic machines and new types of businesses and so on. And that's why we've seen, you know, Ethereum on its own is whatever, 200 billion in market cap, give or take, maybe 300. And we can tell a story about why the world's computational layer with embedded economic and property rights should be worth 10 trillion. Like that's that's a straightforward story to tell. Um, But There are also things you can say about what does Schwab on Ethereum look like? What is the native version of Schwab on Ethereum? And the answer is, you know, it's Uniswap and it prints 400 million in revenue per year already. Um, What does the native uh, digital lending protocol on Ethereum look like? What do the music and art uh, protocols look like. What does video look like? And so you start getting into really the creative potential of humanity and the types of things it builds, and it becomes really interesting. And it becomes a growth story about the fundamentals of what people are doing in in this new economy, um, which is which is quite distinct from a token that is used as a currency to power some particular functionality like like paying gas for transactions. You know, so just to give um, a, a final analogy, imagine you land in the United States, you know, and you're, you're setting up your town in the 1700s. Lots and lots of things are going on. And then all you keep doing in talking about the U.S. dollar is cursing about the United Kingdom. You know, and your entire story about the U.S. dollar in 1700 is that the king is mismanaging the, the British empire. And it's just nonsense because what you should be focused on is, you know, which towns are you building? What are you farming? What, how is your trade going? You know, later is which railroads are you laying the tracks to? What kind of uh, industry is growing up? Who are your international trading partners? Who do you integrate into? And so on and so forth. You know, And that's that's the story that for folks who are insiders to crypto, that's really, I think, what they focus on.
1: Yeah, that's a very good analogy. Well, Lex, I want to say you do a tremendous job educating people about the fintech space, a lot of the different topics that we discussed today. And uh, I read a lot of your work through the fintech blueprint, but what are some of the various ways that our listeners can follow your work and find out about what you're doing at Consensus?
0: So I'm easy to find uh, on Twitter. I'm Lex Sokolin. Uh, same on LinkedIn. And then if you want to check out the fintech blueprint, uh, it's just fintechblueprint.com. And of course, Consensus is uh, consensus.net. Or if you want to grab MetaMask and explore what's available to you, check out metamask.io.
1: Well, Lex, keep up the great work, and we definitely look forward to speaking with you on our show again.
0: Hi, everyone. That's it for this week's episode of the fintech blueprint for more technical deep dives into all things fintech and decentralized finance. Check out fintechblueprint.com and grab a free subscription to the newsletter. This is Lex, and I'll see you next time.